Today on the podcast, veterans writing stories. But you, you'll publish your novel, you'll make a million bucks, marry a big movie star, and for the rest of your life you'll live with your conscience. The subject is writing in war. You probably don't know me, but my name is Ron Kovic, and I wrote a book called Born on the Fourth of July, and I'm a Vietnam veteran. What I end up writing about probably, like you, is sort of aftermath stuff. It's what you feel afterward and what you carry with you out of it for the rest of your life. I don't write about bombs and bullets. I write about the human heart. It, that is war, is the subject matter that was given to me. Writing is like exorcism. Those of us who were at his reading that night still remember this brilliant, brilliant story he read. I would write down what happened and being able to see it in my own handwriting. That was as concrete as pictures. And one of the ways we serve the community is through the Veterans Writing Program. We're all writers. We want to connect with each other and express something and communicate. I was a staff sergeant in the United States Marine Corps Reserve, deployed to Iraq. Um, while I was there, my brother was also there, and he was killed uh, by a roadside bomb. And I have been wanting to write about that experience. When we go around the circle and all the vets read what they just wrote, you know, we're all listening, and we're all listening to each other and honoring each other's experience. They need to feel like people care and that people are listening. The vets can then write a memoir, poetry, or prose. Feels like I can go out and write something now. That's the biggest thing, just, just write. Every time you tell a story, there are things you leave out. Every time you write a story, you add a little bit more in. We really want people to write to release some of that angst, of, you know, to write about their feelings, their emotions. You don't have to show it to anybody. You can write whatever you want. That's the one thing about writing. It's yours and yours alone. Welcome to Veteran Voices, a podcast produced by the Veterans Breakfast Club and the Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh Oral History Initiative. Our mission is to give every veteran a chance to share his or her story. Valuable work you're doing, young man. Speaking the voice of the people. I believe it. What's that guy yakking about? Something's going on. So joining me today on the podcast is our new associate producer, Brian Shimini. Mm-hmm. I have that right. right. Welcome, Brian. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This is the first time on the podcast, mm-hmm. and uh, I wanted to um, give our audience a chance to get to know you a little bit. Awesome. So you are on board with us. You're helping us uh, create interviews and get some of this production work that we have together, uh, which is a pretty hefty, hefty <laughs> load we have. Just a little hour and a half long clip here or there. Not too bad. So your background is actually in audiovisual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went to the uh, Pittsburgh Technical Institute for multimedia video and 3D, which is a fancy way of saying video production, audio production, and three-dimensional design. So I could do animations, special effects, that kind of thing. But uh, what I usually do is editing and uh, motion graphics to go along with it, like animated text, uh, show openers, that sort of thing. And you have television experience as well. Mm -hmm. I've worked for Moon Community Access Television out in Moon Township since 2011, I think. It was late 2011, so been on TV more than once. And what do you do at the station? Uh, I was the production assistant, and that basically means helping volunteers who come in to 
produce shows in the evenings, I would be the one to make sure all the equipment was working, all the cameras were set up, and if they had any questions at all during the production, I would assist them with running the gear. Also, I would do editing and um, animations, show openers, graphics, that kind of thing. If you've tuned into Moon Township's football, I made the show opener for that. And uh, how do you like uh, working with us here at Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh? Oh, it's fantastic. You guys are doing such good work. This is such an important thing that needs to be done, just recording the stories of veterans, you know, from all theaters, because a lot of them are on borrowed time. And hearing those stories, it's information that just isn't there otherwise, you know? Sure, many of the World War II veterans are, are very elderly now, and uh, mm -hmm. we, we are on borrowed time, as, as you say. And uh, the Vietnam veterans now are... They're starting to replace them in that age bracket. Right, and we're going to listen to uh, John Barber just a bit. He's going to join us and talk about his book called A Vietnam Requiem. Mm -hmm. But I just wanted to have you on before we jump into John's segment and uh, introduce you and welcome you to the project. Awesome, thank you. Welcome, John Barber, to Veteran Voices, the podcast. Now, John, you are a Vietnam veteran. Correct, yes. I was in Vietnam um, 19 months. And you had uh, a hell of a time, right? You were a combat veteran. Yeah, right in the jungles, yeah, combat, uh, 0311. Your story is on our website. Correct. And you've been to the Veterans Breakfast Club events and, you know, sharing your story. Sure. You know, you were in very dangerous situations, horrific, I would say, uh, things that would haunt you, you know, for many, many years, I, I, I would imagine. Oh, it, it still does. Uh, I, I tell people that uh, I can't remember what I had for dinner uh, two days ago, but I can remember what happened, uh, you know, 45 years ago. Like many veterans who have experiences like that, mm -hmm. you, you, you've probably spent a great deal of time trying to forget when I got out of the, uh, the Marine Corps, um, they told us uh, not to talk about Vietnam, just forget, forget everything. And I did that for about, uh, oh gosh, I don't know, 10, 15 years or so. And then I started uh, reading books about Vietnam and uh, movies that come out about Vietnam. And uh, I, I just wanted to uh, put down on paper what I went through in Vietnam. And that's what we're going to talk about today is the book that you wrote. Your memoir. I'm curious, where did you begin? Uh, obviously, you know, it's well, a lot of story there to put down. I know. Uh, I, I was talking to this guy on the uh, on the internet. Now, on the internet, you can find just about anybody. And uh, I forgot how I got a hold of him, but uh, he told me that he wrote a book about Vietnam. And I said, oh, when were you there? He says, well, I was never in Vietnam. I said, well, how did you write a book about it? He said, uh, veterans would tell me stories, and I'd write it down and uh, made a book about Vietnam. And I said, I've always wanted to do that, you know, tell you know, my experiences, but I, I'm not a writer. I, I don't know how to even start. He said, just sit down and start writing. And I sat down one night. I didn't get up for like six months. I wrote every day, every night. Uh, it was all in my head, and it just, it just came out. It just came out. It just came out, yeah. Wow. I, I don't know how, but, you know, uh, one story led to another story, to another story, to different dates, different months, and I just kept on, and it just just it just poured out of me. And where did you begin? Well, I began, I mean... Uh, well, when you when you sat down to write, yeah. I mean, you, you obviously had to find some place to begin well, those I, first couple of words. Uh, I started at, uh, at, at boot camp. At boot camp. 
boot camp. Well, I came from a dysfunctional home. It wasn't very nice there. Uh, my brother quit school, and he was a junior in high school, and he joined the Marine Corps. He couldn't take it at home anymore. And uh, I told my mother that uh, I'll finish high school, and then I'm gone. You know, so that's I, right out of high school. I joined the Marine Corps in August of 1965. That's where you begin your memoir, right? And yeah, in, in, in boot camp, yeah. So you say that the the stories and the memories just started to come back to you. D- did you surprise yourself? Like, wow, I I don't remember this, but it's starting to come back to me. Did you have that experience? No, I, it just it it just all fell into place. I, I don't know how. It was just all in my head, and it just just came out, you know. And you call yourself uh, not a writer. I'm I'm not a writer. <laughs> Believe me, I'm not a writer. But your your memoir, which is very detailed, and I yeah. think very eloquent, and I think it lays out your story, your experience, in a very literary way. I think you do qualify. Well, as a I, I I tried to put the reader uh, right in the story, you know, and I think I did that. There's a lot of words that could be changed. I could have used different words, a different vocabulary. You know, uh, that's why I say I'm not a writer. Speaking of vocabulary, you had an experience with somebody who was uh, offering you advice uh, about vocabulary. You you want to share that story? Uh, Someone who said uh, about uh, there's not enough salty language. (laughs) When I started writing uh, my, my book here, I sent it to an author. And uh, she wrote back and she said, uh, well, where's all the swear words? Where's all the F words? And uh, I said, I I don't remember saying those things. I probably did, but I I just, I don't remember that. And she says, well, you got to have them in there. So I put a couple words in there, you know, just to make it look good, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I just, I don't remember talking like that, you know, but I'm I'm sure I did. She says, well, all Marines swear, so. I probably did. Yeah, I think she was right, but yeah. But it is your story to tell, right? You were telling that story at that particular moment in your life, and obviously, you know, you weren't into that kind of language, and that's how it came out, right? Yeah, I'm sure I did swear a little bit, uh, maybe a lot. I just, I just don't remember saying those things. As you were writing your memoir, were there things that you wanted to leave out? No, I, I think I put everything in there. A lot of my personal life is in there also that a lot of people don't know. Just said it like it, like I, like it, like it was. No, there isn't anything I don't think I left out. Mm-hmm. We've had veterans tell us, uh, I'll tell you everything you want to know, but I'm not going to tell you about killing somebody, or I'm not going to tell you about this or that. And, you know, and that's fine. That is yeah. certainly someone's prerogative. But I'm always curious when I hear people sharing their stories I always wonder, and I listen for the self-censorship and those silences that, to me, uh, you know, I certainly have to respect as an oral historian, but I'm always curious about the stories that remain untold and why they remain untold. You know, there's, is, there's things that I didn't put in there that I can't prove that happened, but I, I know it did happen, uh, but I, I didn't put it on paper because... Uh, there's no way of me proving it, mm-hmm. you know. Did you go back and look at the dates and the names and sort of triangulate with recorded history, uh, the things that your memory was conjuring up? In other words, did you fact check and do things like that? Yeah, I, I, uh, I wrote to the um, First Marine Division records and I got some uh, 
records that they sent me about different operations that we were on, different dates and things. I couldn't get too many names. That's like my wife says, well, how come you don't remember so-and-so's name? Uh, there's a friend of mine who was, who was in the Marine Corps, and uh, uh, he's telling stories, and he knows. Uh, he's mentioned uh, a, a lot of names, and my wife says, well, how come you don't remember names? I said, well, I didn't want to remember names because uh, they were just dying so quickly. You know, you, d- you didn't want to get too close to them. And that is still painful. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot of tears that went into this writing, you know. If, if I could ask you on a personal level, how did you get through those very emotional moments? You know, obviously you wanted to tell those stories, but, you know, it been difficult, of course. How did you get through those? Well, I have two stepbrothers and a stepsister, and they've always asked me, you know, what did you do in Vietnam? I said, one of these days, I'll tell you. I'll get drunk enough, and I'll tell you. And they kept on asking me and asking me, and then finally I wrote this book and, and uh, you know, put it down on paper, and then uh, this, is, this is what I did. So you had to do it. You, you felt like you had to do it. Yeah. What is the title of your book? A Vietnam Requiem. And why that title? It's for all the uh, Marines and, uh, that have died, you know, they've gone through uh, combat and never made it home. Mm-hmm. You know, just telling what not only I went through, but what they went through. A lot of them went through worse things than me. I made it back. You know, they didn't. You are recognizing the sacrifices that people oh, made. Oh, yeah. But your yeah. story is really a survival story because you made it back. Right? What'd you say? Yeah. I, I um, uh, Deep down, I think uh, I went through troubled times at home, I think, just to harden me up for Vietnam. Uh, it, it made me a little bit stronger, believe it or not. Sure. John, you have your manuscript with you here. Would you like to read a, a passage or two? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll start here. I walked along some small trails and roads. The rice paddies were lush and green, and there were large mountains in the background. There were little kids on backs of water buffaloes riding through the rice paddies, and old men and old women up to their knees in brown, muddy water planting rice. It was beautiful, but it was also deadly. We had to keep telling ourselves that. The irony was that the rice paddies, just like these, would soon be places of combat and death. Why did you choose that passage? Because when you're walking along the countryside, it's just so beautiful. But the enemy is out there, and you never know when they're going to pop up and the firefight starts. What a juxtaposition, you know, you, you, this beautiful countryside. And it's a beautiful place. We talked to a Vietnam veteran, a corpsman, Navy corpsman in combat, and had been in some pretty harrowing uh, situations. Throughout his entire story, he told of those events in a matter-of-fact way. Until he started to talk about the countryside, and there was a valley that ran down to the sea, and it was a beautiful evening, and there at the end of the valley was a village, and he lost it. He just totally broke down. I think it was sort of like what you're getting at here with this passage, is such beauty there, but so much danger around it. Is there another passage you would like to read? Yeah, here's another uh, passage here. I thought a lot about how scared I was. I think all Marines were scared, but... We made sure never to let anyone else know. I know I wasn't a coward. It was just that different kind of scared. It's the kind of scared that made all your senses more alert. 
It made you conscious of every little thing going on around you. I constantly took everything I heard, smelled, and saw. I processed it all and made decisions. I had this deep sense of something was going to happen to me. Sometimes I'd be walking down the trail in the jungle and I could feel the enemy's gun sights focus on my neck. It's like a feeling you have when you think someone is staring at you and you turn around and sure enough, someone is looking right at you. I lived with this feeling for the whole time I was in Vietnam. It was the constant reality that made you anxious when you go on patrols. I hated that. We didn't like ambushes or get up in the middle of the night or be on guard duty all night long, but we did it because we're Marines. We did it to save each other's lives and our own. Maybe we did it because we were scared shutless or because we were trained to do. I don't know, we just did it. Man, that's honest. That's just brutally honest. What kind of reaction have you gotten from people that have read this? Reactions? Things that you expected or not expected? I've had uh, a lot of people say that they, they can't put it down. They read the whole thing in one night. Others, uh, they said, oh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, that's what my son used to tell me. That's, my, that's what my brother used to tell me. And Good reaction. You know, they, they liked it. A lot of them didn't like the part about my home life. What you know, I went through there, but uh, why? I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I mean, were they just being empathetic, uh, or, or they just they found think, that part uncomfortable? That yeah, I think so. Maybe they didn't believe me. I, I don't know. But you know, but we went through hell at home. In fact, I had it better in Vietnam than I did it at home when I was a teenager. Wow. Guys would get letters from home, and they get homesick. I couldn't understand why. <laughs> Why would you get homesick? You know, I, I never had that kind of uh, loving home and family, you know. What's the message here for a younger audience? People who don't know about Vietnam or they know of Vietnam from the movies, uh, popular culture. I, I don't think the uh, younger generation really knows what any veteran, Vietnam veteran, went through. They see these movies and, uh, you know, maybe 10% of it's true and the rest it's all movie land you know it's but it's it's i just want them to know that uh, those veterans went through hell um i i don't know the exact numbers but in world war ii the actual fighting was uh, a little over 200 days a year actual fighting and the actual fighting in vietnam was over 300 days a year and your book is uh is not the movie presentation Right of Vietnam. Your book is the real lived experience. Yeah, uh, I, I just I can't say enough for helicopter pilots that came in, picked us up under fire. I can't say enough for uh, the the jets that dropped napalm. I can't say enough about the uh, ships off Tonkin, coast of Tonkin, and uh, shooting their sixteen inches over our head to wipe out a, an NVA force coming towards us can't say enough about the Navy corpsmen who saved many, many lives under fire, you know, and all they had was a 45, which they hardly ever used because they were crawling in through mud and jungle trying to get to uh, wounded, uh, wounded vets. I'm sure there are many veterans who feel that same way, and they would, you know, they're survivors too, and they would want to express uh, those sentiments as well. What advice would you give to somebody who, like yourself, 
says, you know, I, I want to tell my story. I want to get it out on the page. What advice would you give them? Just sit down and start writing. Just uh, whatever you can think of. I used to get up at, you know, uh, 3 o'clock in the morning and say, oh, God, yeah, I forgot to put that down. Or I remember this and I remember that. And uh, keep a, p- a pen and paper uh, by your bedside. You know, you can, you can think of something, you write it down. Uh, that, that's what I did, you know. Did you draft this first with pen and paper? Oh, yeah. Everything, everything was on paper. It was yeah. all handwritten? All handwritten, yeah. Wow. I'm not a very computer guy, but uh, uh, when that came along, then I started putting it on the, on the computer, you know. Yeah, my, uh, my uh, older daughter helped me a lot. She said, Dad, you know, you got that down twice, you know. So she would, uh, she'd, after I'd write it down, she'd read it and uh, take care of it for me, yeah. Right. So your advice is for, for people to just start getting those memories out onto the on oh, a yeah. page. Yeah, and, and they will come. Uh, one story uh, kind of clicks another story, and uh, I'd like to read something here if I could. Sure, to, absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. There are a lot of books and people that say that we should have not gone to Vietnam. The war could have not been won by the United States because of the unwillingness, I think, of the Vietnamese army. We won almost all the battles, but lost the war. There are people who say the South Vietnamese and their army lost the war, but I say also it was the United States because of the way it was controlled and who was controlling the war. So many lies were told to us fighting young men in Vietnam. But we signed our name on the dotted line, and our our ass belonged to Uncle Sam, and we did what they told us to do. Our commanders-in-chief of the armed forces told us to go to Vietnam to fight and save the South from the North. Right or wrong, I went with no questions asked. I still believe I did the right thing by going. I served my country, and I would do it again if I was asked to do so without question. The veterans of this war were only following orders. Over 58,000 vets died because of this war. The ones that made it back, like myself, and my fellow Marines also died and left a little of their souls there. We weren't monsters, just doing our job as fighting men in any war. We had a job to do and we did it. We had compassion for the Vietnamese people as a whole. We gave them food, tools to work their farmlands and medical aid. In war, you're gonna have innocent people die, that's war. We were welcomed in Vietnam by the South Vietnamese people more than we were when we came home. We were spat upon and called baby killers. I couldn't understand that. That was the first war you could sit down at your dinner table and watch the war going on. You could see Americans fighting and dying. There's an old saying, war is hell. No one wins. No one's going to tell your story like you can tell your story, right? And I think that is a great way to approach a project like this. If anybody out there is daunted about typing, well, that's the least of your worries, right? Putting your story out there is telling the truth as you lived it, as you see it. That is something very powerful. John, I want to thank you for being on the podcast and and sharing your story, which is a Vietnam Requiem with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Coming up next, Kathy Swayzik, Vietnam veteran, Army nurse, and poet. You're listening to episode 20 of Veteran Voices, the podcast, a production of the Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh Oral History Initiative and the Veterans Breakfast Club. To learn more about us and to access our online collection of veteran stories, visit our websites 
veteranvoicesofpittsburgh.com and veteransbreakfastclub.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. Our nonprofit mission is to create communities of listening around local veterans and their stories through public storytelling programs and oral history interviews so that veterans of all eras and branches of service can preserve and share their memories in their own words. Thousands of local veterans, their families, and members of the public have participated in our storytelling events and Veterans Oral History Project. No one else in the region does what we do to recognize and honor the veterans of Western Pennsylvania, but we need your help. Please support our nonprofit mission by becoming an underwriter or by making a tax-deductible donation. Here's how. Give us a call at 412-623-9029 or visit veteransbreakfastclub.com where you can make a secure online donation. Hi, Kathy. Kevin here. Hi, Kevin. How are you? Welcome to the podcast today. Oh, thank you. Well, this uh, is a great connection that we have here, so that's uh, that's always a good thing. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes uh, I have to call a few times before we get a good connection, but um, this is great. It sounds awesome. Oh, very good. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you on. You're our first poet. Oh, my goodness. I'm honored. <laughs> thank you. So, Kathy, you are a Vietnam war veteran. Correct. Yeah, I was in the Army student nurse program, and um, when I graduated from nursing school, I went into basic training at Fort Sam Houston. I was a butter bar at that time, a a second lieutenant. A butter bar. (laughs) Yeah, that's what they call us. And um, once I was at Fort Sam, they told us that 80% of our class would be in Vietnam by the end of the year. And Pretty much that held right to the truth. I ended up at Walter Reed for six months and then left in October for um, Vietnam of 1968. Did you know what you were getting yourself into? You know what? At that age, <laughs> I was probably 19 or going or 20. Um, you just didn't think about. I mean, the war was going on, but it was it still wasn't reality. And I just, you know, like everyone, thought my country wouldn't put me in any harm's way or any danger. And uh, I really didn't know. I was a brand-new nurse, so I wasn't really used to even what to expect stateside, let alone in a war zone. (laughs) So it it was uh, quite an experience, to say the least. You were in-country and attending to some of the ravages of the war, the carnage, and you saw firsthand, you know, the terrible effects of war on the bodies. How did you deal with that? Um, Part of it was there wasn't a lot of time to think because we had to act very rapidly. Like when we would have mass casualties come in, I mean, you just worked until everything got stabilized. So that could be anywhere from you know, 12 hours a day to 18 hours, depending on what the need was. And there wasn't a lot of time to think about everything. When we did hear things from the states, there was, you know, a lot of protests were going on about the war. And so it was a very unpopular war, whether you were there or back in the states, I I had imagined. Although when you're with a group like the military, 
you're so mission focused and we were so focused on caring for the wounded and the injured that it, it just um we were like united in a purpose these were our young men and we were there to help get them through whatever it is they had to get through um i was shocked by some of the injuries of, that i saw specifically burn injuries in the states I hadn't really dealt with, you know, sunburn and that kind of thing, but nothing like we saw on young men in Vietnam. They had napalm burns and all kind of white phosphorus burns and uh, just all kind of burns that had to be treated. So that was a whole new experience, plus gunshot wounds. I was so new to nursing and had not graduated from a trauma hospital or anything like that. So um, my relationship to major traumas was probably limited to broken arms and that kind of thing, the walking wounded, nothing like um, what we were dealing with in in Vietnam. Mm. Oh, that just sounds horrific on all levels. Just just what a horrific experience. It really was. The one thing to get you through, though, is, again, that esprit de corps and that sense of a mission purpose. And um, we worked so much as a team in order to take care of these young men that um, we didn't have the formalities that we had back in the States. I mean, everybody was part of the team, and there wasn't any hierarchy. Um, We all just knew we had a mission to do. So that closeness and sense of community is something I think a lot of... um, soldiers struggle with, because I think you look for that everywhere in the world, and it isn't always there. It's like, you know, you talk about the closeness in a foxhole and that kind of thing. I think, you know, when you're in a situation like that, it doesn't matter who you are, what what color you are, what, what, any, what any of your beliefs are. It's the, the united mission to save the young wounded soldiers makes you really very close to the people that you work with. Mm-hmm. And that pulls you through. I, I mean, it pulled me through. I know that. Mm-hmm. Well, let's fast forward here. I mean, you have such an amazing story, and you've shared many aspects of your story at Veterans Breakfast Club storytelling events. But for today, I would really like to get to this wonderful collection of poetry that you've written, and it's called War Torn Heart. And I'm looking at the cover of your book now, and you have an amazing quote here, which really echoes what you're just saying here. Uh, It's the fragility of the human body and the resilience of the human spirit. From Hawkeye Pierce, from MASH. Yeah, actually, the the beginning of that is what has this war taught me. Oh, I can't see that on the... Yeah, you can't see it on the cover, but... And it was the fragility of the human body and the resilience of the human spirit. And I was thinking about that um, as I knew you were going to call me because that truly describes everything about being there. And the the other quote on the, on the cover that is that your time there was um, so vague and scattered. It wasn't all black and white. And uh, uh, I wouldn't have traded my time there for anything, and yet I would not have stayed a minute longer. Mm. So it kind of sums up the a lot of the experience. Sure. So your byline on the book is uh, poems and art inspired by the Vietnam War. Could you tell us a little bit about 
why you felt compelled to write this book. And you wrote this many years later, correct? Well, and actually, I wrote, um, I, I began writing writing when I returned from Vietnam, partly because, you know, I came back so patriotic, and we came back, obviously, to a country that wasn't at that point enamored with the soldiers who fought or were over in Vietnam. So um, you kind of had to stuff down that patriotism and that pride and that we felt from doing our country's bidding. And so I began to write, and, and kind of... Uh, it's everybody laughs because it was only later, several years ago, where I pulled a lot of this stuff out of an old drawer that I had, and it was all on ratted old paper and cracked paper and, you know, scrap paper and little bits of here and there, um, and started putting them together and began to read them to a group I go to at uh, Shaler North Hills Library, which is where I live. Um, in a group called Art and Inspiration. And that's when I began to share some of the poems, which I had never shared with anyone. And um, well, Let me stop you there. Let me take you back to the writing of that poetry. Uh, tell us about that. Why did you feel um, that you had to put your experiences... I mean, I'm assuming that you, you felt that you had to do this. Uh, am I right? Absolutely. It was so, For me, it was an outlet. I just felt... I had stuffed on so many of my feelings and and thoughts about Vietnam, and yet the experience stays with you all the time. So I started reflecting on my experience, and uh, it it ended up coming out in poetry. I had always dabbled in trying to journal and that kind of thing, but it ended up coming out in these poems, which uh, many of them describe my feelings at the time and and what was happening. So I don't know if that answers your question or not. But, yeah, um, cer- certainly, certainly. So later, when you had joined this writer's group at, at the library, mm-hmm. you started to pull these writings out of the drawer, looking at them, and you said, wow, these are, I want to put these into a book. Well, the, I was encouraged to do that by the group. Um, I had not in my head, not thought about that. Um, but every time I would share a poem, they kept, and I had begun to write some as well, some re- reflections as in my past. So some of the, a couple of the poems were more current, but most of these had been written in, you know, when I returned in the 70s. Mm. So they encouraged me to begin to write a, write a book. And as I thought about it, I was in a group where there was art was so much a part of everything. I began to talk to people about sharing their interpretations of some of my poetry into art. And so that's kind of how the whole ball got started with the book. Did you find these writings surprising when you picked them up again and you started to edit them, revise them for the book? Did you say, wow, I didn't realize... I felt that way, or yes, I do remember feeling this way. I think it opened up a wealth of feelings, which I hadn't thought about. And again, I always say stuff down. I hadn't dealt with them for for all those years because, of course, life gets in the way of raising. I have two sons, and I was, you know, a single mother. I was raising them, and 
Uh, so I had stuffed down and forgotten about a lot of this. And when I pulled it out again, it really kind of, all those emotions and feelings bubbled up. One of the poems is called Looking Back. It's reflections on a war that kept us cramped on a cargo plane for 24 hours. Frightened humanity, each carrying a story in their heart. We are two females among the masses. We cling to each other, sharing our fears, our prayers, our lives. We cling to each other to support our sameness. My heart pounds with fear. I choke back tears of childhood, of friends, of memories, of hope. Will I make it back? What is war? Why is war? Will I learn the answer? Hmm. I was with one other female nurse on this plane, this cargo plane, just chock full of soldiers as young as we were, all, you know, heading off to war. So it was quite an experience. Wow. It's very hard for your family to understand, first of all. I wasn't a guy, so, I mean, they didn't have a son that's a soldier, which probably would have been a little more easy to swallow, but their daughter was going to Vietnam, you know, and so I had just gone through all that trauma and drama with the family as well. Mm-hmm. It just sort of sums up how young, and, and we really didn't know, although you heard in the news what, what war would be like, you had no idea. And throughout your book, those experiences are flushed out in a way that I think only poetry can capture, you know, metaphorically, um, subtly, artistically, creatively, uh, however you want to describe the expression of those experiences through, you know, that art form. Uh, I just find it very compelling. And I think a lot of other people do as well. It was a wonderful experience to finally get all this out and to to get it written down. It was also such a joy that these artists shared their unique talents in interpreting some of these poems. I was just amazed and really proud of the effort on everybody's part to get it done and on the books. <laughs> right, right. There's a a YouTube video of one of your presentations uh, with uh, William Rock, at, actually at the North Hills, uh, Shaler North Hills Library. And right. there are uh, veterans there who are sharing these stories. Right. We had um, a book signing at the Shaler Library, and what I wanted to do was have veterans tell their story, then read a poem that had spoken to them. And it ended up being a very emotional, and I think for a couple of vets, they're very therapeutic experience. I mean, they had just not dealt with a lot of these emotions, and having another soldier up there telling their experience, I think, really created an atmosphere where they could open up as well. Now, your book is available through Amazon.com and Blurb.com, right? Yeah, it's also... um, Available. I can. I have copies here that I would be glad to send out autographed if anybody would, you know, would like that. So, Kathy, before we go, could you read us some more uh, selections from the book? Sure. Um, the one everybody seems to like, I guess, is Agent Orange. Uh, I, now, this was one of my more current writings, and um, as a female, I've had 
coming back from Vietnam, so many weird illnesses and things like that. And they, I believe a lot of it is related to the exposure. We were Our hospital was built on land that had been defoliated by um, dioxin or Agent Orange. So we were all very much exposed. But there hasn't been a lot of research on women, so it's very unlikely that anything, you know, they're just strange illnesses. And I've talked to many of my nurse friends who've had the same experience. Agent Orange, sprayed orange in a yellow war, breathing in and out the pixie dust that coats the air, that coats the air, seeping into body, trying to destroy the soul. I am old now. The body is racked with pain, bones soft and bones broken, lungs no longer willing to expand and let in the reborn air of spring. Inert too long, I must climb out of this bunker I have built to isolate my worn-out body to try and heal my war-torn soul. There will be no choppers to rescue me. Escape must be on my own. I wave the white flag of surrender so that I can move into the light. I walk toward the sunrise and brightness of a new day, a new beginning, a new landing zone where the dust is no longer orange. Mm. Wow, that is so powerful. So powerful. Thank you. Now, I heard war-torn in there, war-torn soul, and the title of your book is War-Torn Heart. Can you, Correct. Can you tell me a little bit about that title? Or the term war-torn, what that means to you? War destroys more than the enemy. It destroys the land. It destroys the people. And I know we're seeing it now with these young men and women coming back from Afghanistan, how much it it works on your mind. And uh, speaking from a woman's point of view, war-torn heart to me was the emotion war-torn emotions, war-torn feelings, all these things that had been stuffed down is kind of how I arrived at the title for the book. That's fascinating. I hadn't thought about that before. So many veterans are hurt. You know, they're physically damaged. But women who served during the war, Vietnam, and by and large, were not in the same way. Some were, of course, but... So you say in you, you, that title reflects, um, by and large, the emotionality, the devastation of, to the emotionality. You know what I'm trying to say? Is that right? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, it, it. these are like poems that I wrote from my heart to try to heal my heart from the devastation and the loneliness and the traumas and the drama that I did experience. It helped me to at least focus because I always feel like there's there's sort of that lockbox in my heart that um, stores all those feelings. And I think this has kind of opened that up. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to read a review of your book that is on the Amazon uh, website, because I think it's really relevant. It says, this is a truly exquisite book. The poetry reveals the heart and soul of Kathy Swayzik. And the many other nurses who serve the broken bodies, hearts, and minds of our wounded American Vietnam soldiers. Her poetry is poignant and timeless, and the artwork selected to illustrate this book is lovingly crafted by many of Kathy's fellow artists. A lovely and brilliant volume for anyone whose heart still remembers. Oh my gosh, that, I've not seen it. That is awesome. 
Oh, my gosh. That is really awesome. I think that about says it all. <laughs> I think it summed, I think you've summed it right up. <laughs> I, I just think you have to um, you have to remember too what the time was like during that time to understand some of the emotionality because we were really in a crazy time. If I could just read one last poem called "The Veteran," oh, please. It, it sort of explains some of that. Out of sync with time, still looking for, believing in the idealism that was our youth in the 60s, it took us to mourn at Arlington, to march in Selma, to war in Asia, then sent us home battered by reality, home to a different life, where old values, goals, and morals seep to the surface only now and then. Wow. Just amazing, amazing work that you're doing there, Kathy, and you continue to do because you continue to share your stories and, you know, you have your book out there. And uh, I really encourage anybody to pick up your book because they really matter. They really do matter. Oh, thank you very much. I am just honored and thank you very much for allowing me to do this. I really appreciate it. Coming up next on the podcast, Melissa Marinaro of the Heinz History Center will talk to us about transcribing veterans' interviews. Melissa, welcome to Veteran Voices, the podcast. This is our special edition devoted to written stories. We do a lot with video and a lot with audio, of course, but very little so far uh, with the written word. So we're really excited to have you on today to talk about this wonderful program of creating transcriptions from some of the interviews that we've done. So welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So the transcriptions that you're doing from the Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh interviews that's a big process, right? You know, tell us a little bit about that process. Absolutely. When we make transcriptions at the Heinz History Center, it's a process that typically takes about 10 to 15 hours of labor. So what we'll do is we will listen through the interview, and as we are listening, we will transcribe what we hear. And I find that the more you do it, the better you get at it. You get to know the person who's being interviewed. You are able to learn things about the way they talk. They might have a particular way of speaking. They might have certain crutch words that they lean on. And I find that you get to know them in a pretty intimate way when you're doing the transcription. But that being said, you have to listen over the same segment over and over again to make sure you're really getting all the words. And we try to go verbatim. Uh, we do try to include as much as possible. That might include if someone sighs, if someone cries, if someone laughs. We'll include in brackets these different directions so that people can understand that in a conversation, even the nuances like that really can add to the story that's being told. Because you're not after just the information. You're after putting down on the page the actual conversation that took place, right? Mm -hmm. Including the size and the 
exasperations and things like that. Absolutely. And it may be that someone is telling a story where they're talking about being injured. And in that story, they may with you point to something, but the reader might not know that from what they're hearing. So we will include those kind of directions so that people understand when they say, and then I was hit here. In brackets, we'll put points to shoulder. So then our readers fully understand what that experience of the conversation was like. Because over time, if you weren't there and that gets lost, it takes away some of the meaning of the story that's being told. So that's essential to the process, as well as making sure we are reflecting the way a person speaks. So we have an interesting dialect here in Pittsburgh. People use words in our region that they might not use in other areas of the country. And we don't take that away. We don't strip the transcripts of those colloquialisms. What if someone is, and this happens, they're they're bumbling around, they are struggling to find the right phrase or to get that memory. And how do you handle that when it comes to putting that down on a page? Do you sort of paraphrase? Uh, how do you handle that? In that case, we do a form of paraphrasing. When someone does what we call a false start, meaning they have trouble starting their sentence or paragraph and they might try a few times before they lead into the sentence, we normally will not include that because we don't consider that to be essential to the understanding of the story. And in some ways that might impede the reader or the listener from really getting at the story. So we won't include that. Um, in, in the same respect, if someone is bumbling or having a hard time in the middle of a story, we might choose to remove select parts of it from the transcript just so it reads a little cleaner. So in the age of video and audio on demand, why go through this process of putting this stuff down on paper when we can just listen to it? We can just, uh, I, I, I mean, I, I certainly get it. But I'm sure there are a lot of people who say, well, that's, isn't this just redundant? Isn't this just really not even going to sit well with a younger generation, at least, that is so audiovisual? I find that the transcriptions, particularly for our researchers, are an important tool. And a researcher might not be able to sit through an hour or an hour and a half of content in order to find that quote that they're looking for. So if we are able to provide them with a transcription, they can read through that faster than they can listen to the audio or watch the video. So we find that that is one of the advantages to having the transcripts as well as if we have someone who's a researcher or if we have a journalist or a person who's writing some kind of article or paper, they can go into that transcript and lift the quote that they're looking for instead of having to create that quote themselves from the audio. Um, so I find that with our library and archives, the people who are accessing these transcripts are using it primarily for that reason. And that's frankly why I use the transcripts as well. Um, when I was writing an article for our Western Pennsylvania History magazine, I was looking for sound bites from our oral histories, and to be able to go through the transcripts, it was a much faster mode of locating that than going through each of the interviews and listening to them in full. Right. There's no magic technology out there that, that can, uh, well, maybe there is somewhere in the Google Labs, but, you know, of finding a phrase in an audio file or a video, it's just, it's just not there. Mm -hmm. But you can put in a keyword in written 
uh, a written format, and exactly. a search engine can find that, boom, right there. So searchability, quick access to the information, very important. Yeah. So how many transcripts are in the works right now? Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm trying to think of my personal queue. I have probably five or six in my queue. And then if we look at the Veterans Voices collection, you transferred over, I think it was 113 interviews recently. So we have a lot that we're waiting to transcribe. And you better get busy. Then. It's, <laughs> it's true. It's something that we work really closely with our volunteers and interns. Typically, we have a couple people that will work on one transcript. So we have a person who goes through and does the first draft. So they will go through, they will do the listening and the transcribing. And we love the function on Microsoft Word that allows you to add a comment. Because then what our transcribers can do is if they hear a word and they're not sure on the spelling or they're not even sure what the word is, because we all hear different things in interviews, they can put in a comment, they can put in the timestamp. And then they can ask the second editor to do a listen to see what they can pick up. And we do have some oral history interviews that because of the age, they might not be the best sound quality is what we're producing now. So it does help to have different ears listen to it. Once we go through that first revision, then we will have a second editor, who's usually myself or someone from the library and archive staff, do a listen where I will make sure that what is on the page is matching what I'm listening to. And then I'll also go in and tweak and make editor's notes where maybe I feel that there's a false start that doesn't need to be included, or maybe there's an area where they paraphrased where I might think it's more important to include the full text. So I'll go through and I'll make those tweaks. And then with a few of our collections, particularly the Italian-American stuff, I do like to go the extra mile since I have relationships with the people I'm interviewing and often ask them to do a read-through just to make sure that they're comfortable with everything that they talked about in their interview. Um, and then once that comes back and we have the revisions, then we are able to process it into the collection. I think it's really important for people to know how much work goes into creating the transcripts, but beyond the work, just the due diligence, right? Mm -hmm. the, the scholarly uh, process of making sure you get it right, you get it accurate. And I'm glad that you, you know, described that process because I think the public really needs to know that. Mm -hmm. We take it very seriously because we recognize that people are sharing personal stories with us. And sometimes there are stories that they haven't shared with their family until recently. So when we do our release forms, when we have people give us the okay to put this into the public domain, we take that contract very seriously and make sure that they are happy with that decision and that they know that as staff members that we respect that they've chosen to share their story with us and that we will preserve that for them in perpetuity. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and sharing some of the, the insights uh, around transcriptions. And people can uh, find the transcriptions at the Heinz History Center as they mm -hmm. become available. They'll also be available on our website. We are sharing these mm -hmm. back and forth as part of our project. And uh, I'm very excited about it personally. Uh, it's, it's a great change for me from listening and you know viewing the videos and stuff to be able to read text. So I appreciate that, and I appreciate you being here today. Well, thank you, Kevin. Thank you for giving me a chance to inform people about everything that goes into making the transcriptions. Our guests today have been Kathy Swasek, Vietnam veteran, Army nurse, poet, 
and author of War Torn Heart, along with John Barber, Vietnam veteran of the Marine Corps and author of the memoir, A Vietnam Requiem. We were also joined by Melissa Marinaro of the Heinz History Center. That's it for episode 20 of Veteran Voices, the podcast. I'm Kevin Farkas. See you next time. You're listening to Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh. You're listening to Veteran Voices. You're listening to Veteran Voices. (laughs) 